This is Dojo Live, Tech Without Borders, stories that bring us together. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to another Dojo Live. Today is the Wednesday, March 16th. This is Tulio Siragusa broadcasting from Southern California. Joining me today is Kim Lantis in Billings, Montana. Hi, Kim. Welcome hey, back. Hey, Tulio. I heard you almost say Tuesday. That's because you missed our show yesterday. I For did you, miss it is the Tuesday. Show. I'm finding that nasty little bug that everybody's gotten, but uh, I'm almost over it. Uh, and we have our guest, Richard Bronson, who's the founder and CEO at 70 Million Jobs, who's joining us today. Hi, welcome, Richard. It's good to have you. Thank you so much, both of you, for having me. So, if the, if the name of the company hasn't given away what we're going to talk about today, I don't know what will. But we're going to talk about jobs and hiring people and where to find great talent and how to scale. But before we go into all that, let's get to know our guest a little bit and let's get to know his company. Uh, Richard, if you could please introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Once again, welcome to the show. And once again, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Richard Bronson, and as you mentioned, I am the founder and CEO of 70 Million Jobs, which is the first national for-profit employment platform for people with criminal records. And the 70 million comes from, there are 70 million Americans that have a criminal record, which represents, believe it or not, one in three adults. Wow. So um, statistically speaking, I am probably the only one among the three of us who has a record, and I indeed I do. Uh, and that's what brings me to the work I do. I used to work on Wall Street. I uh, had my own company that I grew into a very large business. But unfortunately, I let my greed and impatience trump my morality. And I got myself into trouble, securities law trouble, and lost everything and ended up spending two years in prison, uh, federal prison. When I got out, I had discovered my calling in life, and that's to help my brothers and sisters who are in prison or coming out. Wow, amazing. Uh, okay, so let's talk about 70 million jobs. That's a lot of people with a record. I, I, that's something new I just learned. Mm -hmm. what, was, what gave birth to this idea? What is it that you guys do? Um, like a lot of people who come out of prison, um, number one, to get on your feet, which of course includes getting a job, is an incredibly daunting challenge. Um, and many people who go to prison when they come out, they uh, are attracted or drawn to working in the reentry space and often end up working at a nonprofit organization because having a record is actually sort of a benefit if you're in the business, you have domain expertise. So that was true of me. And I worked for a while at a prominent nonprofit in the reentry space. And while it was very satisfying work, I lamented the lack of impact we were having. Uh, and indeed, uh, all of the reentry re organizations out there, the rate of recidivism 
uh, in this country is staggering. Three out of four people will return to prison within a couple of years of their release. Mm. Almost all of them are unemployed when they're arrested. Contrarywise, people who come out of prison and get a job almost never get in trouble again. It's that binary. So uh, I wanted to have more impact. And uh, no one had ever tried doing reentry as a for-profit or doing it nationally. And few uh, gave us a shot in hell of succeeding, but succeed we did. And we were uh, uh, successful at facilitating employment for thousands of deserving men and women. So I'm very proud of that. That's amazing. So basically out of about 90,000 people that this show reaches, you can bet that 30,000 of them have some kind of a record. On the assumption that most of the people are adults, if you have a very young listenership, um, then the numbers don't hold true. But adults, right. no. yes. Yeah, all our listeners are adults. So that's, that's mind-blowing. We're learning a lot today. Let's see what else we can learn, and let's see what we can uh, share with everyone watching. And... Uh, make an impact in other people's lives as well. Kim, if you could please kick it off. Let's go right into it. I think for we're going to sure. learn a lot today. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Tulio. And thank you, Richard, for being here with us today. Richard, the topic that you chose is looking for talent in unexpected places, addressing hiring needs at scale with talent that will surprise you. So it's no surprise now that we're talking who is that unexpected place, who is that talent, and it's adults with a criminal record. But one of the things that you mentioned as you were telling and sharing about 7 million jobs with us is this difference between a nonprofit and a profit. Do you think that is the key factor that has made 7 million jobs a more successful in comparison? And why is that? Um, I think that almost anybody who uh, has had a deep association with a nonprofit in general could report certain things in common. Um, people who work at nonprofits, for example, are generally, I think, really caring, uh, thoughtful people who have a strong feeling of humanity. But there is a vivid difference in the work ethic that goes on at nonprofits versus at an aggressive business environment. I used to work on Wall Street. And we used to get to work really early and work late and, you know, never left our desk. Um, at nonprofits, I've heard and seen a lot of employees there say, boy, what a tough day I had today. They showed up at 10, they left at four and look at how hard I worked. Um, my point being that people who are drawn to the private sector are drawn out of a desire to make a lot of money or ego or whatever it may be, but they're aggressive, they're accountable, and they expect that. Whereas that's not really true at a nonprofit. So the, eth the work ethos is one thing. Nonprofits in general, and certainly in the reentry space, don't employ much technology at all. Government doesn't either, surprisingly. And without doing that, as we all know, it's virtually impossible yeah, to really yeah. scale in any kind of significant way. So those are a few reasons why. Thank you. Thank you for that explanation. So now that you mentioned technology, what is the technology behind 7 million jobs that allows for you to more effectively um, get 
people placed in employment? Well, we uh, have three business lines, uh, which are which is which are a staffing company. Uh, we have a job board, and we also do direct recruiting. Direct recruiting is no technology at all. It's uh, famously high touch, very difficult to scale, uh, and a pain in the neck. Um, however, our staffing business. Um, and our job board, you know, we, we do an incredible amount of very sophisticated marketing. And obviously on a job board, there is a lot of underlying technology, um, which, you know, helps really deliver the message uh, and keep you on top of things. Additionally, when the pandemic hit, it had a devastating impact on our business because companies were laying off all our people en masse. So we use that time to build what we call Commissary Club, which is the first mobile uh, social network for the formerly incarcerated. Sort of like Facebook for ex-cons, if you will. And that's all technology. And uh, you know, creating a community um, is really one of the most wanted things within the population that I serve. So we were the first to do that. You know, Richard, I, I'm curious. It's Go interesting. We always we always hear this uh, this saying, right? The past doesn't define your future, unless you're an ex-convict. You know, because you have a lot stacked against you. Clearly, the need for this is there. But are companies, uh, what's like? What can they do to be more proactive in giving? folks who they made a mistake they paid for that mistake it's time to move on time to rehabilitate time to heal and not go back you know into doing things that 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 got them there to begin with can companies do more and can legislature do more like what's the incentive for a company to, uh, to be encouraged to just like in diversity initiatives this doesn't seem to be a topic of conversation in diversity initiatives you know, hiring people who are excellent. You're right. Can you, can, can you share a little bit, shed more light into what companies could yeah. do to improve that? You've asked. Right, Nobody talks about that. Um, just now. Every time I thought I knew where we were going, you, you just brought up another point. So they're, they're all good points. Um, number one, um, you know, I believe that business ultimately is motivated by their business interests more than anything else. So there are some companies that have, feel a sense of corporate responsibility to do the right thing, you know, for one reason or another. Maybe their son was arrested or something like that. But ultimately, for them to be interested in hiring folks with records, there has to be a compelling business case that could be made or the need has to be so overwhelming that it trumps their ambivalence. And certainly we're seeing that now whereby companies, many are desperate to fill the millions of unfilled jobs. Um, so, you know, out of that desperation comes strange bedfellows. Out of that desperation, companies are willing to entertain things that they heretofore never would. Now, we are, I am, um, SHRM, uh, which is the Society for Human Resource Management, 
we are their fair chance hiring partner. And they as a partner have been really very, very in the forefront of advocating for fair chance hiring. And what they have discovered among their membership, which is probably counterintuitive to most, is that hiring managers with experience in hiring folks with records report that the quality of hire is at least as good, if not generally better than hiring someone without a record, believe it or not. Now, why is that? It's because people with records don't have as many options. So if they do get a job, they need to make sure it works and they'll, they're loath to do anything, you know, that's going to screw, screw it up. Their retention is better. So you're getting better performance, better retention. That's a home run in the HR world. And as more and more companies become aware of this, um, then obviously, you know, their, their appetite for at least dipping their toe in the fair chance hiring waters has grown immeasurably. And then when you include things like Black Lives Matter and social equity, you know, issues that have been certainly in the forefront over the last couple of years, that's also brought attention because uh, at the end of the day, maybe three quarters of the people we work with are people of color. So it's very much an economic issue, a racial issue, and the zeitgeist in this country has unquestionably moved in the direction of more permissiveness or openness to all of this. I really like uh, your practical approach to what many times is perceived as just a heart issue. And I think there needs to be heart and there needs to be empathy. But I think what you've done is bridge those two gaps and going back to the idea of it needs to also serve a business, right? It can't just be for the better good. And yeah. so when you talk about all these, these great reasons that people with a criminal record make great employees, I can't help but help go now to the very beginning upon release and the practicality of these people need to be prepared. So is this something that 7 million jobs has done, is doing, or will do of helping get criminals who are still incarcerated, incarcerated prepared to come out and join a workforce and not just in an entry level, entry level position, you know, in the service industry, but where these jobs are actually needed? Like, is there any education happening? Well, um, you know, education in general is not a very scalable industry. And it is very much a discrete, separate industry. It's not something you can dabble in, be it online or bricks and mortar. Um, and you really got to know what you're doing when you do it. We don't know what we're doing when we do it. We know what we do. And that's plenty for us to take on. What we do is we partner with many different companies that do online training, bricks and mortar training, obviously a lot less over the last two years, and a lot of nonprofit organizations who, for, you know, that is their reason for being. So the answer is yes. These are people, the people we serve um, are ill-prepared for their release, um, and we should never be surprised when the rate of recidivism is so high because someone can't get a job. Someone is released from prison, they have not a great deal of job experience, little education, and now we throw them out into the cold. They're not used to making decisions themselves. And, you know, they have, you know, 
very little that they can do if they're lucky enough to get a job at a McDonald's or a Burger King or something like that. And, and clearly those jobs are not paths out of poverty. So it's really a big systemic problem that training, uh, reentry should start not the day someone leaves prison, it should start the day they show up in prison. I think Again, that's you're practical man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I think maybe to, to riff a little bit off of what Kim was asking, are you guys reaching out as well into the prisons to make this available to encourage the process yeah. um, to prepare? What can uh, organizations or companies do more of? How do we create an environment where you're not paying for your sins for the rest of your life? You know, once you're done, how do we help people get back on their feet? Clearly having access to what you're doing is great. And to your point, to start the process very early, how can other organizations or even companies get involved to encourage that? What are your thoughts on that? Well, the, I mean, the best thing that these nonprofits do is they do help create a sense of local community. So many companies, you know, partner with local nonprofits and they do pilot programs and internships and apprenticeships and stuff like that. Um, prior to the onset of the pandemic, there was much greater demand for the jobs among the job seekers and less of an appetite to hire them among big business. It got flipped completely because now Companies, as the economy has come back so strong, companies are desperate to fill positions and they've discovered, you know, the great resignation. Nobody wants to work. And if they do go to work, they quit after three days, you know, and they go somewhere else or they don't. And that has affected my population as well. So, um, you know, it's a screwy time. And my hope is things normalize because it's been very, very challenging for our business. We operate with a two-sided marketplace, job seekers on one side and companies who might hire them on the other. And they're both highly ambivalent about, you know, both. Companies are still worried. They still are concerned that someone will get into trouble or someone will show up high or they'll rob the place or say the wrong thing to one of their customers and there'll be terrible press and it'll hurt their stock price. And on the other side, job seekers, um, you know, can't be all that enthusiastic about a job that pays minimum wage. You know, I think in, in, in Texas, the minimum wage there is $7.35 an hour. And a lot of these jobs, they don't hire them full time so they can avoid paying them, giving them benefits. So how does a mother with three kids whose husband disappeared long ago and all she can get is a job at McDonald's making $7.35 an hour, but they'll only hire her for 25 hours a week or 30 hours. I mean, does anyone really think you can live that way? So when they, you know, if I don't have kids, but if I had kids, I don't care what it takes. I'm going to feed them. And if they, if it can't be done legitimately and, on a, you know, and, and legally, I'm going to do whatever it takes. My parents would do that. And I'm sure almost everybody would agree. So we shouldn't be surprised at negative outcomes when people are set up for abject failure on day one. 
And that's for the most part how things are. And it's really sad because I work with so many of these people and when I was in prison, I lived with them obviously. And so many of these people are so heroic and their lives sucked from the day they were born. And yet they still hold on to a feeling that there's possibility and hope and they believe, you know, in America and all they want to do is get on with their life. Nobody wants to go back to prison. These people are just like, well, I don't, don't, I'm one of them, so don't use me, but they're just like you. You know, they want to have a family. They want to be happy. They want to have love. They want to be safe. They don't want to go to prison. That's such an old myth, you know, that's been dispelled, you know, I mean, decades ago. But Steve, people still think that, that it's in play. You know, um, all I can say is if you need great people and you want someone who's going to be loyal, my people, knowing that someone went out on a limb to hire them, they reward those people with their loyalty. And that's an old fashioned concept that young people don't really, I don't, you never hear about that anymore, but my people, you do. Mm -hmm. So give it a try. You yeah. Be shocked. So a lot of our viewers are, you know, tech companies and, and lead, not only tech companies, but leadership in those tech companies. So if you would want to speak to those leaders or can you explain to us how, what the process of joining that jobs board might be, how companies get involved with 70 sure. million jobs. And I assume it's going to be tech involved and pretty easy, right? If you want to keep it as simple as possible. If I can do it, certainly your listeners can do it. Believe me. Um, it's interesting you bring up tech companies because sadly tech companies, which ostensibly are liberal and progressive, you know, and data-driven and all these other things, really when it comes down to it, they're among the very worst industry for hiring folks with a record. You heard that, Dojo Live viewers? It's time for change. It is. And, and it I makes work, me sad. And I know all of the heads of HR departments at all of the largest companies, they talk a good game. But when it comes down to it, almost none do anything, you know, special at all, which is sad. Um, but certainly, um, we try to make it as easy as possible. Number one, um, go to go to our website, 70millionjobs.com. The number 70 and million jobs with an S.com. And, you know, we lay out, we make a pretty strong case about why fair chance hiring is good business. It's also the right thing to do. Uh, and we give you options on how you can access this vast pool of talent. When I started this company, I vowed that I would help a million people get jobs. It just sounded like a good number. You know, I, I had no idea is that doable or, or not. Uh, I don't know if it is or not, but, you know, um, I, th I think we could change the world if it happened for the better. And that would be really nice to be part of. Uh, but we are experts on it and we can help optimize the chances for it to be successful. There are certain classic mistakes mm -hmm. you can make. You know, it is a little weird doing this and different and you need to know what you're getting yourself into. But if you do it the right way, you know, I mean, I see it when companies start, we'll, we'll get 10 people with you. And then two weeks right. later, they call up and they go, we want another hundred just like those 10 people. Wow. 
you know, that's our go-to-market strategy. Nice. You know, and it is not me. It's not my company. It's, again, the heroic nature of some of these people. You know, they re- and, and I'm talking about people who like were murderers even, right. you know, but like, but you, you refer to them as criminals. Um, you know, we don't do it that way because that criminal is someone who committed a crime. You know, imagine if you, Kim, or you, Tulio, were only known for the worst thing you ever did. Oh, Joe, he's a philanderer. He's the adulterer. He's the he's an adulterer. <laughs> yeah. He cheated on the his drunk. taxes. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe he did. But is that the only thing he's ever done? And is that of course he, not. Does that stigma have to stay with him forever? He did his time. He's sorry. He wants to pay taxes, take care of his family, and get on with his life. If we right. continue to identify them as the worst thing they've ever done, they can never shed that stigma. So, Thank you know, you. They're, they're, we call them returning citizens, you know, they're human beings. I love that. Returning citizens. The other other half of this puzzle. So thank you for sharing Mm. how companies can get involved in your jobs board. You mentioned, I know this isn't 70 million jobs focused, but you do have partners that help with the training side. A large portion of our, the other half of our viewers, I think it's about 60% are experts in tech themselves, right? The developers, the project managers, et cetera. If these people wish to do some volunteering or help with some of those profits to help get people prepared to enter into, you know, this type of career. Do you, are you able, or can you share, maybe we can put this on your landing page as well. Any that come to mind that they can check out and get involved with. For the most part, these organizations are local, which is good in a way. And it's also, you know, sort of um, hurts their ability to really scale, but we have 300 partners and, you know, pretty much all of the prominent companies that do this training and, you know, job readiness, um, and they're on our um, website, and you can see them in their names, or you can just contact me. And if you are looking for something specific, I'd be thrilled to introduce you to a, a potential partners, you know, so, um, you know, that would be great, too. Uh, the motivation has to be there, ultimately. And, you know, it's not the easiest thing. It's not, it is fraught. You know, there's a lot of different opinions at this. People are motivated by a lot of different weird sort of drivers. There's racism, there's mythology, you know, and an age old ideas that really don't apply anymore, you know, that are at play. So you got to get past all that clutter and that noise and really deal with, you know, the reason why we're a, we're a for-profit company, my feeling always was, if we can't make it, if we're not sustainable, we don't deserve to be in business, you know? So I don't want to be a charity. I want to make a lot of money doing this business, you know? Mm-hmm. I used to be rich. I'd like to be rich again. And I also <laughs> want to do a lot of social good. That's You're double still rich. returns. You're right. still rich, Richard. Um, so... First of all, <laughs> maybe the oldest person who's ever used that joke on me. <laughs> so, well, I had to find a, a reason to to to, to lighten the the mood because this this has affected me personally. I, I I'm very moved by what I've learned today, uh, and it, it's very sad what's happening. And we hope that more organizations, more companies take to heart the fact that some people they make a mistake, they pay for it. 
but they deserve every every opportunity to make a living, make a life for themselves, and create a different legacy. And uh, that stigma is real. You talked about, and I would say, just listening and watching the show, I really questioned myself: Do I have that stigma? And I have to say, what made me sad is realizing I probably did a little bit, but as of today, I don't. And so I want to appreciate the fact that you shared this with us from the bottom of my heart because it really moved me personally, and I hope it moved other people who watched as well. As you did this, this is an impactful, important mission you're on. And yes, it's for profit. And when your heart and your passion align, you know you should be able to What's make good money that? with it as well, right? So what's that journey been like for you personally? What have you learned about yourself in building this company so far as we wrap up? I, I, you know, I've, I've launched a bunch of companies, um, but this is the one I launched after going through to prison. When, when I worked on Wall Street, as I'm sure you guys know, the, over, the prevailing ethos, you know, and it's, it's, it's a meme, you know, greed is good. But, you know, the attitude is life is a zero sum game and either I'm going to win or I'm going to lose if you win and I'm not a loser. So I'm going to do whatever it takes. I am in a way very happy that I went to prison because I had an ego that was out of control. I was disrespectful of my fellow human beings. I th somehow thought I was so much better. Or if you didn't make a lot of money, you know, you were a loser. All these, and you know, and and that just informed all of my relationships, and that's terrible. And I'm what I'm what I'm really most uh, ashamed of and regretful is how I treated people, you know, before all of this stuff happened. But like many people who go through a very, very heavy challenge and certainly go to prison. Um, there's something about scrubbing a hundred toilets every day that puts your ego in check. You can't be all that, you know, when you're wearing khakis like everybody else and sleeping, you know, I mean, it's some disgusting place, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that was good for me to learn. And in learning it, it opened my heart to care about people honestly and truly and not because I had some kind of scam going or whatever, you know, um, and it improved my life immeasurably and I can sleep better now. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm a Buddhist. I believe in karma. Uh, I believe that there's a lot of shit that I got to sort of deal with in my past. And that's what gets me up in the morning to be a better man than I was the day before. I mean, I want to go to heaven, you know, although as a Buddhist, we don't go to heaven, but I mean, I want there to be a happy outcome. I don't want to come back in my next life as a cockroach. So I'm going to do what I can do to help my brothers and sisters so that they, you know, might have a chance to lead a rewarding life and put the past behind them. And having a chance to talk about this with guys like you, you know, I'm very, very grateful because if, you know, if I can touch or if the story can touch one person, you know, that one person can set in motion a revolution. So, you know, just try to remember it, you know, the next time it comes up and, you know, we're all, none of us are perfect, you know, 
we do the best we can do, right? Well, Rich, it's been a pleasure to have you with us. Thank, thank you. you so much for sharing your story. And thank you for much, so much for doing this. Um, stay with us as we go off there in just a second. Kim, what do we got coming up tomorrow? We got one more show? We do. Tomorrow. One more show to wrap up the week. That will be tomorrow, which is Thursday. And we're going to be speaking with Jerish, I believe I said that correctly, Jerish Redekar, who is the co-founder and CEO of Sprinto. The topic of conversation is making your SaaS enterprise ready, how to accelerate your SaaS revenue with information security. Uh, yeah, so that's tomorrow's topic, 12 o'clock noon, right here on Dojo Live. And thank you so much, Richard, again, for sharing your story and being with us. It's our pleasure, pleasure and our honor. Thank you so much. Check out past episodes, transcripts, blogs, and more on our website, dojo.nearsoft.com. <laughs>